Today we're going to look at the theme, the subject of why worship. Why do we worship? Why should we worship? Uh, what's the point of it all? And I want to ask, I want to start by asking you a question. As you consider your Christian experience and you consider your life of faith amongst the church, what do you believe is the one necessary directive that the church should strive to achieve? What is the one thing that you feel that this is my purpose as a believer, this is what I'm meant to do, this is what I'm called to do, this is what we should all be doing? Think about that for just a minute. I'm sure we'd collect a variety of, of uh, answers depending on which ministry camp you might come from. Some might say, you know, the main thing is soul winning. Getting people into church, that's the one thing needed that we should all be doing. Others might say, it's the fullness of the Spirit. That's the one necessary component needed in the church today. And still others might say, the one necessary thing is having a true reverence for God. We need to have a healthy fear of God. All of these are good. All of these are necessary. But are any of them more important than the rest? And are any of them the most important thing? Fortunately, we don't have to wonder about this because the Bible, I think, is very clear on what is important and what is necessary, the preeminent thing for you and me as God's children. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm 27. I know the passages or the verse is going to come up on the screen in just a second, but if you do have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 27. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little background to the author of this particular psalm. It was written by David. David was an amazing servant of God. He was a remarkable man. He was a great preacher. He inspired many as a great leader. He was unquestionably a mighty soldier. He was perhaps the greatest king to sit on the throne of Israel. He was an accomplished musician and songwriter. He got the gig for playing for the king of Israel. King Saul would say, hey, bring up David. I want to listen to him for a bit. My heart is troubled and I need something to soothe my soul. And David was the guy. He was a man of courage. He was a faithful shepherd. He was a real man's man. He even had this epitaph. David was a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you? I certainly would. Brad is a man after God's own heart. You're a man, you're a woman after God's own heart. That was David. Now, he had a radical resume. Put all that on a resume. Who wouldn't hire him? But if you were to ask David, David, what's your ruling passion? What do you aspire to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? What dominates your attention, David? What's the thing that controls you? What's your ultimate objective in life? Is it to be a great preacher? Is it to be a mighty warrior? Are, are you wanting to be a visionary leader who inspires? A great king? What's the number one passion, David? In light of his vast accomplishments, I think you'll be surprised at the one thing he passionately sought after. And I think he would have said, you know, being a great king, being a mighty warrior, being a muso and a songwriter, all of that's good, but it's really incidental in the big picture. The one thing I've desired of the Lord, 
verse 4. The one thing that I have desired of the Lord, that's the thing that I'm going to seek after. And what was it? It's to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. The only thing that really mattered to David was experiencing intimate fellowship with God. That's what he sought after. That's what he longed for. That was the one thing he desired. It was God. And because God resided on the throne of his heart, all things became possible for David. Everything else became a possibility. And God used him radically in many different ways. But notice again what he said in verse 4. I'm going to seek after that one thing. I'm going to pursue it. He knew that intimate fellowship with God was, was not only a lifelong goal, but it was a daily pursuit. Every day he sought after intimate fellowship with God. Every day he sought after time with the Lord. He didn't forget the Lord his God. He didn't set him aside. He didn't pursue or run away from him, but he sought him diligently. Oh, sure, he had his moments. He made some mistakes. That whole Bathsheba and Uriah thing, that was a pretty big mistake. What about you? What do you seek after each day? When you get up in the morning, what's the first thing that comes to your mind besides coffee? This is what I've got to do today. I've got to do this thing for God. It's been pressing and I've got to do it. I've got to read this passage. I've got to read these chapters. I've got to tick off the boxes of my prayer list. I've got to meet with God's people. I've got to finish this thing. What is it that rules your heart in the morning? and governs your life, and causes you, compels you to pursue after. Now, all those things are fine. Nothing's wrong with being ambitious for any of those. But do you seek to meet with God without bringing your to-do list to Him? Do you seek to meet with Him, not for what you can get out of it, but what you can give to Him and what He can enjoy from you? Now, I confess, this isn't easy, and I don't do it all the time, and maybe you can relate. But imagine as a parent, if your children only came to you and only approached you and only spoke to you because they wanted something. A lot of kids do that at times. I'm hungry. Feed me. I need to go somewhere. Where's the keys to the car? But imagine if that was the, the extent of their relationship. It was only to get and never to give. What if they never sat next to you, never showed any kind of love and affection, never thanked you for all the things you've done for them? What if they never showed any kind of appreciation? You'd feel hurt, taken for granted, not really loved. And yet, that describes a lot of people's relationships with their Heavenly Father. They approach God only to get something from Him. Now, let's be clear. God wants us to do that. 
He wants us to seek him for stuff. He tells us to bring our petitions and our supplications and our prayers and our needs to him. He tells us to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. He wants us to do that, and we need to do that. And he plans to give us the things we need. Jesus said so. Seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But oh, how delighted the Lord is when we come to him, not to get something, but to simply sit, to thank him, to praise him, to worship him. I think the Lord is thrilled when we do that. He's delighted. He loves it when we do that. If you have your Bible, turn, turn to Luke chapter 10. Verses 38 to 42. Jesus had just finished giving some instructions on who our neighbor is. And you know the story. It's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and how he helped the man who was beaten up and left for dead. He took him in and he provided for him and so forth. And he just finished giving that parable, explaining that truth, and telling us who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is anyone who's in need. Essentially, that's the, the nutshell of that parable. Our neighbor is anyone who's in need. And then it says in verse 38, now as they went on their way from there, they left that spot. Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up and she said to him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Notice her criticism, her complaint. Tell her then to help me, her command. But the Lord answered her, verse 41, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen that good portion which will not be taken away from her. We are introduced to two sisters. Perhaps you're familiar with this story, and as you've read it in the past, you've pictured in your mind Martha frantically working around the house, just busting herself to get it all done. The Lord's coming, the Lord's coming. And who wouldn't, right? And then Mary is just sort of sitting there, lazily sitting around at the Lord's feet. And you notice the stark contrast of personalities. The truth is, both sisters were busy, but Mary was focusing on a different form of service. Both were busy. They were just doing different acts of service. Notice Martha's attitude when Jesus showed up. Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me alone to do the work? Look at her. You see what's going on? I'm doing everything. She's doing nothing. Don't you care? She's complaining. She's wallowing in self-pity. Have you ever said that to the Lord? Lord, don't you care? Look at me. Look at what's going on. Don't you care? 
I've said that. Complaining, wallowing, and self-pity. Jesus said something interesting in Matthew's Gospel. Remember when John the Baptist had been imprisoned, and he began to then question, is he the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? And so he sent a couple of his boys to go ask Jesus. They showed up, they asked Jesus, John wants to know if you're the Messiah or if we should be looking for somebody else. And Jesus' response was fascinating. He said, go tell John that the deaf hear, the, the blind see, the lame walk. And by the way, tell him this, blessed are they who aren't offended because of me. That's an odd thing to say to a guy who's in jail. What's he talking about? Blessed are they who aren't offended because of me, Jesus said. What's he saying? He's saying this. God allows us to be in situations at times that we might not like. It's not desirable for us. But he has us in that situation for a purpose. To use us for his glory and our good. And if we shake our fists like Martha did, complaining and wallowing in self-pity, don't you care, Lord? We're offended because of what he's allowed us to go into. We're offended because what he's allowing to happen around us. We're offended because we don't like God's will for our lives. Well, that was Martha. Well, then she took it a step further and she commanded the Lord and she said, tell her to help me. Now, if she could be so bold as to complain and rebuke the Lord, what do you think life was like for the rest of the people in the house? Now, Brother Lazarus isn't in the story, is he? <laughs> Ooh, Martha's in a bed. I'm out of here. What did Jesus do? Did he sympathize with her? No way. Jesus will never fuel our flesh nor feed our inner self monster. He said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset. You're anxious and troubled about many things. Things. Many things can infiltrate our lives and trouble us. It was things that were smothering Martha and distracting her from what really mattered. Things that caused her to drift from the Lord resulting in complaining and self-pity. It was things that she felt she needed to get done that were distracting her from what mattered. Martha, you want me to tell Mary to do something that I've not called her to do. You want me to tell her to do something that you feel she should be doing. But she's actually doing the one thing I want her to be doing. She's doing the one thing that is needed. She's chosen to do the one thing that's necessary, and I will not take that away from her by telling her to do something else. What was Martha distracted from? From the one necessary thing in her life, the thing that Mary had chosen to do, she was distracted from worshiping God. And she'd lost the joy of worshiping the Lord. Her relationship with God was merely service, Duty, drudgery. Now I want you to notice a key word in verse 42, chosen. 
Mary made a choice to worship God. Martha didn't. That was the difference between the two. And that was the difference between the person who is satisfied with Christ and the one who is dissatisfied with life. The difference between the person who is satisfied with Christ and the one who is dissatisfied with life. It's easy to drift in our faith and become distracted like Martha. It's our natural tendency. We naturally drift away from the Lord because our flesh longs for the things of this world. We long to do sinful things in and of ourselves. It's a gravitational pull. That's our natural tendency. We naturally drift that way. But you'll never drift into being a Mary. We must choose to worship God. We must choose to draw near to the Lord. Why? Because it's the one necessary thing we're to be doing. Now, what about the Apostle Paul? What was his ruling passion? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he said this, I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. It's not that Paul didn't know the Lord and therefore longed to meet him. That's not what he's saying. Who is this Jesus? I've, I've heard about. I want to know him. That's not what he's saying. He wanted to know him more intimately. He wanted to experience the fullness of Christ in his life. He wanted to know Jesus in the most intimate way possible. And he said earlier, as far as I'm concerned, everything I've ever had or done is worthless compared to knowing the Lord. I've given it all up, and I'll gladly give it all up that I might gain Him. Paul's ruling passion was knowing Jesus to the max. If this is not the priority in your heart, duty becomes a hard slog. It becomes a difficult task, an undesirable chore. But if Jesus is central in your life, then duty becomes delight because you'll see it as an act of worship. I can worship the Lord with the things I'm doing, with the life I'm living, the service I'm offering. Oswald Chambers, if you don't know him, he wrote the classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He said this, Worshiping God is the great essential of fitness. If you've not been worshiping, when you get into work, you'll not only be useless yourself, but a tremendous hindrance to those who are associated with you. Interesting. What's he saying? He's saying if you're not meeting with Jesus, really you're not walking in the Spirit. And you're living and serving in the flesh. The things that, that grieve the Lord. You're dry. You're empty. You're barren. Life is void. You're wanting more. You hate where you're at. You don't like what you're doing. But how you associate with others, it's really ungodly, carnal. We were away on holidays earlier this week, and I got up early one morning, and the sun was just popping up, and we were down at Diamond Beach, or up at Diamond Beach, just above Foster. 
And we were staying at a place that was just right near the beach, a minute walk to the surf. And I walked to go check it out. And as I was standing there, there was this, the, the clouds were there and the sunlight was beaming through the clouds. And you've seen that before when the rays are coming through and it just looks really cool. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I pulled out my phone and I'm, and I'm trying to, you know when you click the button and then you have that little option in the very bottom right corner to flip your camera open? And I'm, I'm trying to do that and it keeps bouncing back. And I'm getting frustrated. Yeah, what's this thing doing? It's not working, it keeps bouncing. And I started to grumble. See, it was, it was six o'clock in the morning, I was alone. Oh man, come on, why? And I'm gonna miss it, I'm gonna miss the photo op. And I'm, oh man, and it's not working. And, <laughs> and right then, this guy walks behind me. And I went, hey, how's it? I don't think he thought that was real funny. Maybe he was laughing at my, you know, idiotic comments. But I share that to say, and that's a minor thing, but you get the picture. I was in the flesh, I, was, oh, I wasn't working, I was grumbling. And this guy walks behind and heard me grumbling, and I was really embarrassed. You ever had that happen? Where you're just like whining about something, you're grumbling, and there's somebody right there, and you go, oh, that was a blow it. <laughs> that's what happened. But that's how it is. That's what Chambers is talking about. If we're walking in the flesh, and that's, our lives are just, they're not very appealing to others. We're just kind of a stink. Now, in thinking about worship being the priority, let's not forget the first and the great commandment for us as new covenant saints. The first and the great commandment, according to Jesus, he said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. The first and the great commandment. The preeminent thing needed in our lives, according to Jesus, is our worship of God. See, when you love God first, then He will be extremely valuable to you. And the thing that you value highly will be the thing that you exalt onto the throne of your heart. It will be the thing that you look for and look after and really cherish all the time. Maybe you have things that you value highly. It might be relationships, it might be possessions, it might be position. And you live for that thing. And you've given it the place of priority in your heart. God wants that place. And like David, Mary, and Paul, when God is the most valuable thing to us, the one thing you'll desire above all else will be to know Him more each and every day. What does your devotional life look like? If you're meeting with the Lord in the morning, that's awesome. I encourage you to keep doing it. But understand, that's just the beginning. You're tuning your instrument to face the day. It's vital to set aside time with the Lord in the morning. It's a right start to the day. But it's even more vital to be walking and talking with the Lord throughout the day. Do you ever do that? When you're going through a market or you're at the shops 
Lord, I don't know. I'm about to. What should I do here? Spurgeon said that he was never out of vital contact with God for more than 10 minutes. Is it any wonder that God used that man so mightily? Is it easy to walk with the Lord continuously? No, it's not. It requires an act of the will. It requires a determined effort to meet with the Lord. Choices that we make. But if we don't have any problem meeting with people we highly esteem, when you look over your calendar, your diary for the week, I'm sure you all have appointments, some more than others. You might have appointments with somebody that you have been looking forward to meeting with for whatever reason. Maybe it's a business transaction. Maybe it's a relationship issue. And you have been longing for that meeting because there's something you want to get from it. And there's no problem to move around your schedule to make it happen. And we fight for that. And we'll make it happen because it's important to us. Because we esteem them highly. Why should it be difficult to meet with God who esteems us highly? The God who created us. The one who's looking after us day by day. If we truly love him, we'll long to meet with him and we'll choose to do so. You might be going through the motions. Maybe you're not meeting with the Lord all that often. Devotions are on the run. Prayer is in the car. No such thing as quiet time. Not on our fast-paced Sydney lifestyle. But the result of that might be a dryness, an emptiness, a barrenness, a frustration, friction, difficulty, just this lacking that you sense. Because you're in your own strength and you're needing, you're longing for the living water of the Holy Spirit. Now the danger of this is a hardness of heart which results in the inability to hear from God. Now, I'll share with this, or I'll close with this story and we're going to transition into communion in just a minute. But I have this ring on my finger. It's significant to me. I don't wear it as often as I want to and like to because it has these really hard edges. And I meet those guys like Henderson who shakes my hand with a death grip and it digs into my finger and it hurts. So I don't wear it as much, but I really should. Now, you think, okay, funny. What's the point of your ring? Inside, there's an inscription. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And without me, you can do nothing. It's a constant reminder for me to abide in the vine, to remain in Jesus, to walk with the Lord, to rest in the Spirit, because without Him, I can't do a single thing. Not of any eternal value, not of any significant worth. But there's a story behind this ring. A number of years ago, my wife, who's not here, I wish she was, she has, over the years, suffered with various ailments and, at times, more than others. And for a number of years, she had chronic sinusitis. She had 
migraines and she had all these different things, these issues that she was really struggling through. And it was difficult. We were in Maui, and Maui is a very dark place spiritually. It's beautiful, but it is dark spiritually. And so aside from the physical ailments and all the stuff that she dealt with, the spiritual oppression was, was thick. And over time, I wasn't getting the things that I wanted. You know, like the affection that I felt I deserved. The support that I was really looking for. And I started to kind of retract in my heart, and my heart became hard. Now, this was all internal. Outwardly, you would have never have known. Outwardly, I was going through the motions. I was doing all the things. I wasn't unselfish, I, I mean, uh, unfaithful. I was there, I, I did the things I needed to do, but internally, she would start to share about this issue or this problem, and I tuned out. I didn't want to hear it. My heart was hard. I'd had enough. And it's because I felt my needs weren't being met. I went to this conference, a pastor's conference, and God went to work on me. He surgically opened me up, exposed what was happening in my heart, showed me the hardness, broke me repaired me and sewed me back up. And I knew after that conference that I needed to tell my wife what I had been thinking, how I had been feeling and the struggles that I had been having and to show her that I was making a fresh commitment, a recommitment. I bought these rings. I bought one for her and one for me. Now hers is almost the same size as mine. She doesn't like it because it's too big. She gets the point. She understands the gesture. That's a lot like us in our, in our relationship with God. Because we could feel like we deserve more, we need more, and we're not getting what we want or deserve. And we start to tune out from the Lord. Outwardly, we're going through the motions. We're doing it all. Inwardly, as the heart gets hardened and more calloused, we're just shutting out the Lord. And we're no longer sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. As we come into a time of communion, this is a time for us. A time for self-examination, a time for an introspective look to see what is happening inside. And it's a time to recommit if you need to. And it's also a time to rejoice if you're already there. If the Lord is your strength and your hope and you're just loving life with Jesus, then it's a time to celebrate. Revelation 4.11 says that we've been created, this is a paraphrase, but we've been created to worship God. It says you exist and you were created because God wants to enjoy fellowship with you. You've been created to worship God. There's a void in life that you'll never fill unless you're worshiping Him. I invite you 
to turn your heart to the Lord, to worship him. The word worship, it simply means this, ascribing worth to someone or something. If you look at Jesus Christ on the cross and you recognize he paid the price for my sin and yours, he did it all. He paid a debt that we could never pay. To me, that's of tremendous worth, and he is worthy of my worship. How can we not worship him? I'm just going to read a couple of things. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 16. As we consider communion, Paul the Apostle writes, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Communion is about connecting. It's intimate fellowship with Jesus. It's intimate fellowship with one another. For all of us, partake of that one bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. When we partake of the bread, we partake of the Lord and we do it together because we are one in Him. The next chapter over, chapter 11, verse 23, Paul, in recounting the ceremony of communion, he says this, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, here's the hard part. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so, see, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. Partaking of communion in an unworthy manner, what does that mean? It simply means this. You have no real regard for the things of God or the Lord himself. You're just doing it as a ceremony. You're taking the elements, and yet inside you know that you're going to leave this place. You're going to go out tomorrow. You're going to continue to live in sin and for sin. Now, Paul said something interesting Anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the Lord's body. What's he mean? In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, By his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. And it gives a full description in the verses before and after of the Lord's body that was beaten for us. But in that context, by his stripes, we are healed. It's speaking of a spiritual healing. 
He will heal you internally. He will heal you spiritually. Read it in the context. If you've understood it in a, as a physical healing, you need to read that in its context. It's a spiritual healing. Those who don't discern the Lord's body, who don't recognize the healing that He offers, He says they're weak, they're ill, and some have even died. They're weak, they're powerless. They don't have the power of the Spirit working through them. They're ill, they're, they're diseased with sin, and that sin is controlling them, it's manipulating them, it's, it's, it's directing them. Some have even died, they never came to Christ at all. So as the team comes up to lead us in some songs, the elements are on both sides of the stage, and I would invite you to come up and take the elements, take the bread, take the cup, commune with the Lord, commune with one another. We're all in this together. I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite the team to come up, and I'll invite you to, as you feel led, to come forward to take communion on your own. Lord God, we thank you so much that you have reached into our world to deliver us from sin and death. You've stepped off your throne in heaven, humbled yourself, and became a man. Even more, you became a servant. Even more, you became a slave. And you did it. You died the most humiliating and the most cruel of deaths. And you would do it all again because you love us with an everlasting love that will never fade. And so, Lord Jesus, we recognize that you gave your body to be beaten and bruised so that we could have fellowship with you and we could enjoy fellowship with one another. You shed your blood so that all our sins could be washed away and forgiven, so that we can be made white as snow, and we can leave with a clear conscience and a clean slate, knowing that you have made us new. All things are past. Behold, all things become new. And so, Lord Jesus, as we hold the bread and as we hold the cup, we remember the death that you died and we proclaim your death to those we encounter. May we truly walk with you. May we truly worship you. And may we truly seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen.